This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's uh, jump in off the top of this hour with the latest on what's happening and all of these various stories uh, that all include and are about Chinese interference attempts in Canadian elections. Now, we've had some revelations come to light about the 2019 election, the 2021 election, what may have been going on, what may have been brought to the attention of the prime minister, what may or may not have been done. Now, we did have today the release of this report on the 2021 election. Uh, So this is a panel of public servants that are tasked with uh, reviewing all of this. And now the challenge here is, you know, the scope of this work that's being done. So they say that there was no foreign foreign interference that rose to the level of threatening Canada's ability to have a free and fair election. Okay, so this is the panel. It's part of the critical election incident public protocol. And so this is their report on the threats to the 2021 election. But they say there were attempts to interfere in the election. But those attempts didn't meet the threshold for the panel of experts who were tasked with monitoring risks to the election. Maybe we need to change that threshold. Things happening on a targeted level, on a riding level, are of concern, even if they don't necessarily tip the balance of the election. The idea that foreign interference could affect the outcome in a riding is hugely problematic still. So this really doesn't resolve anything, I don't think, and it certainly doesn't take away from the need for a public inquiry into all of this. So joining us for some further analysis of what's come to light, what we maybe still don't know about all of this, why it matters so much, and, and why we need a public inquiry. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, security expert uh, Dennis Molinero. He's a former national security analyst with the federal government. He's an author and researcher. His latest book, uh, The Bridge in the Parks, The Five Eyes and Cold War Counterintelligence. Also professor of legal studies at Ontario Tech University. Dennis, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, so much to talk about. I mean, we've got today now this report from the panel under the critical election incident public protocol says, yes, there were attempts at foreign interference in the 2021 election, but it didn't compromise the integrity of the election overall. Let me get your thoughts, first of all, on, on what's in this report. Sure. I mean, the, the report is, is is good for the terms that was set for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Let, let's elaborate, break that down a little bit. What I, and not really so much set for it, but actually set for the panel to actually report on interference. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, there's a very high threshold, very high bar that the panel, this panel of civil servants to, has to meet to be able to report on whether or not there was interference in the election. That bar is really tied to you know, the integrity of the ability to hold the election, and whether it was free and fair overall. Mm-hmm. So it's an extremely high bar to meet. So it's very unlikely the panel would actually come to any different conclusion based on that high threshold, because we know state foreign states like China, we've been seeing in the news, you know, they're targeting specific writings. They're not targeting 
the election as a whole. So that's really the, the, the main issue there. And, and I'd also add to that part of the other problem with the report is the report isn't really, and the, and the panel isn't really set up to, to detect and really make much of proxies. So what I mean by that is the panel, rec- the, the report recognizes that detecting proxies who are working on behalf of a foreign state is very difficult. So it's it's difficult for everyone. It's difficult for security services, and it'd be difficult for the for the panel to have concrete proof of this. And that's important because in the report you see reference to, you know, the 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 report makes reference to a Global Times article about the Conservative Party. Now, the Global Times is a PRC, it's a People's Republic of China state-controlled media. It put out during the election this uh, opinion piece saying that something to the I'm paraphrasing to the effect that. Voting in the Conservatives would be like voting in a, another loyal dog of the U.S. Now, the opinion didn't say Chinese Canadians don't vote for the Conservative Party, but proxies who are working in Canada on behalf of China and not declaring that could take that story on the ground and run with it to voters and say, don't vote for the Conservatives. That's state interference, but it's very difficult to detect. It's yeah. something that the report would not catch. Well, and I think the takeaway then, I mean, you know, even this report did find that there were attempts at foreign interference. So the report yeah. acknowledges that was going on. As you say, maybe there are forms of this that the panel's not really set up to detect. So certainly we should not take this as, as any kind of solace then, or at least not, not be complacent about this, should we? No, absolutely not. And I mean, even the report itself acknowledges that. It acknowledges that the, the threshold is very high for reporting interference and that they should, you know, the government should look at changing that. Importantly, it also acknowledges that interference happens before and after elections. And that has to be recognized because that includes nomination races. So these are things, these are areas that foreign states can target and, and are alleged to have been targeting. So the report acknowledges that as well. And that we should actually reinvestigate the tools we have to counter interference. The report says that too. So there's a lot in there that the report is saying, you know, we need to be, you know, don't take this essentially as the be all and end all about what happened in 2021. I mean, in in different words, but pretty much that's the, the overall takeaway that I have from it. What does this tell us about CSIS and its ability to to keep tabs on all of this and keep the government apprised uh, of what's going on? I mean, we've we've seen these stories in recent days, and I guess there's also the question about, you know, the, the leaks that are coming here. But obviously, CSIS is alarmed by what they're seeing. CSIS is trying its best to to monitor and stay on top of this. But do we have enough there in terms of uh, a surveillance system or, you know, CSIS or the RCMP and what what they need to do this work? We, we don't have enough tools here to deal with this, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the security services in Canada, they do the best they can um, with what they have. Um, but really, it's, it's, the, it's what to do about foreign interference after it's detected that's the problem. And, and that's where the gaps are. So in other words, we need measures that, okay, once foreign interference has been detected, once we, we find individuals who are working on behalf of covert states, what do we do with them? Right now, we have to wait, essentially, until you can actually catch them and have some type of evidence that they've broken an existing law. In and of itself, just working covertly on behalf of a foreign state is not illegal in this country. And I think that would bother everybody who hears that phrase. 
that means that anybody who could could potentially be working for Chinese intelligence, that in and of itself is not illegal in Canada. Now, in the United States, you would have to declare if you were covertly working on behalf of a foreign state. And if you didn't, you could face prosecution, right? So it forces someone to out themselves. And if they don't, then they can face punishments for it. In Canada, that's not the case. And that's a major, major gap that we have here in trying to actually curb this activity. You know, in terms of why this this matters or why it needs to matter, I mean, you know, we're we're talking about elections, we're talking about a foreign adversary. I mean, it's you know, it doesn't get much more serious than that in terms of a domestic uh, security context. But what what are your thoughts on uh, why this this matters and should matter so much to Canadians? Look, look at the at the root of it. Um, your democracy is your democracy. Um, it's it's our democratic tradition. It's part of our identity. It's part of our way of life in this country. It's it's something that people have have fought and died for to protect. Um, this is critical to your sovereignty, your independence as a country. And if a foreign state is regularly trying to interfere with that and disrupt that. That is, a, that is an attack on you on, on those things. And, and that is something you need to safeguard. If we can't put, get ourselves together as a country to safeguard our own democracy, um, that's a real problem and speaks to, I think, a larger problem in, in Canadian identity and politics than anything else. What are your thoughts on, on the idea of or, or the need for a public inquiry into all of this? Sure. I've been advocating for this for some time, and it's, it's mainly because, you know, the allegations that are coming out are directed at politicians. It's directed at government. It's, it's directed at the political sphere. And so, really, as long as this remains, this, any investigation remains in the hands of politicians to investigate themselves, there is going to be partisan politics. There's going to be mudslinging back and forth. There's going to be a lot of theater. There's going to be a lot of grandstanding. Ultimately, I think in the best interests of legitimacy, country, preserving all those things, we move to some type of independent royal commission. Now, we've had royal commissions in this country for many other serious things. I most certainly think this qualifies as something serious enough to happen. The only issue is how long it would take. And so in the short term, I think something like a foreign agent registry should be put up. That does not take as long as it's been taking. So that could come up in the meantime, and for a more thorough flushing out of what happened here, we need something bigger and more exhaustive and independent. And by the way, we had the story this week about TikTok, which is not directly related to to the yep. uh, election interference story, but it's certainly a part of the bigger picture when it comes to China and some of the security challenges we're dealing with. What, what did you make of the move this week by the federal government? Now we're seeing it at the provincial level to to get TikTok off of government devices. I think it was a good move. I think, actually think the government made a very good move here in, in getting this app off of government devices. If, if I was to critique something about this, it would be that it took too long. Um, and, and I think that, you know, Canada doesn't should Canada is its own country, so it shouldn't always have to be kind of waiting for the United States to go first, waiting for the EU to go first. If you see a security risk to your country, and that's been brought to your attention, I don't know if it has, but if it has, or you see one, act. 
don't necessarily wait for for more you know to to occur or more security violations or risks to occur before you take action so i'd like to it have been sooner but it happened and i'm and i'm happy about that well, we'll see where this all goes from here. In the meantime, more uh, on your work at DennisMolinero.ca. Dennis, really appreciate the insight on all of this. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, there you go. Some great insight. Author, researcher, former national security analyst, Dennis Molinero, why he thinks we need a public inquiry into this whole issue of Chinese election interference. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Ridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. You can reach us 403-974-8255. So we had an Alberta budget come down yesterday. Yes, it's a pre-election budget. We're expecting, shocked if there wasn't, we're expecting an election at the end of May. And this definitely feels like a pre-election budget, kind of something for everyone. More money being spent, check. Some money put away, check. Uh, Surplus, check. But there's a lot of spending here and certainly a, a lot of revenue here. Revenue is going to outpace spending. And if there's a lot of spending, then by definition, you would need a lot of revenue. Where's this all coming from, though? I want to break it down a little bit further to better understand you know, where the money's coming in from and uh, where it's going out to. Uh, economist Trevor Toon joining us uh, this afternoon, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. So these are big numbers. We look at the spending, we look at the revenue. Are, are we at record levels of both here? Uh, pretty much. And, and the second highest level of resource revenue in particular. So overall revenues for the budget, about $71 billion, just shy of that. It is down a little bit from the 76 last year, but except for that one number last year, this is certainly the largest budget we've seen uh, in Alberta's history. Yeah, and I guess the change from, from last year to this is, is that oil prices have, have dipped a bit. Yeah, they were reaching highs of $120 plus per barrel last summer, and we've come down significantly from there. So, you know, a drop in, in resource revenues and a, a shrinkage in that surplus was entirely anticipated. Uh, but even here at oil prices, the budget's looking at about $79 per barrel. Resource revenues of over 18 a billion dollars from that. So we've sort of ratcheted up to a new normal where any given oil price is going to translate into many more dollars for mm-hmm. the provincial government than it used to. Well, I mean, as you kind of just alluded to some of the swings we've seen in recent years, it, it, can, be, uh, it can be a difficult guessing game to, to try to project yeah. where oil prices are going. But this does seem fairly moderate, I guess, fair to say in its, its projections. But I think so, yes. Uh, so $79 per barrel U.S. is a little bit higher than where we are today, but the exchange rate in the budget also matters, and the dollar right now is a little less than what the government was projecting. So the relevant one is the Canadian dollar price, and that right now in the market is higher than what the budget's relying on. But of course, who knows where oil prices go from here, but there's you know nothing in the budget that stands out as something to raise any eyebrows on that front. 
Okay, so there is a, a, a disconnect, maybe a difference anyway, between the amount of resource revenue that's coming in and the size of the surplus. Over $18 mm-hmm. billion in resource revenue and about a $2.4 billion surplus. So where is all that revenue going? Yeah, that, that's a great observation. So the, the government had for quite some time a core principle of its fiscal policy is spending restraint, basically holding the line on total spending. We saw that in budget 2019, budget 2020, budget 2021, of course, excluding the COVID-related spending. But this budget, because it did feature a pretty large spending increase, the surplus of 2.4 is quite a bit less than the surplus of nearly 12 billion that we would have had had the government's prior spending plans been maintained. So the the boost in resource revenues, uh, most of it, the overwhelming majority of it, is being spent. And that means we now need a higher oil price in order to balance. I estimate we need about a $75 or $76 barrel, whereas before we could balance with 70 So absent this resource revenue, the Alberta government would be facing a pretty massive deficit here. No question. So if there were no resource revenues, right, $18 billion, that's almost as much as we bring in with personal and corporate income taxes combined. Uh, so losing that revenue would certainly be a big hole in the budget that would need to be filled somehow. Now, of course, dropping to zero is not in the cards, but that uh, resource revenue is more volatile now than it used to be as well. Each $1 change in the price of oil per barrel is worth $630 million to the government's bottom line. And that's roughly triple where we were prior to um, the, the years prior to COVID, where it was usually about two to $300 million. And we have seen some some changes in direction, you know, on the policy side since the, uh, the the budget update of November of 2022, both in terms of spending, so spending's up significantly, and plans to pay down the debt have changed. How, how big are these changes? That's right. So I think these changes are actually very significant. So the, the spending change is notable because the prior plans, you know, as you noted, as recently as November, had overall spending for the province kind of stable over time. They were anticipating about $64 billion in spending for this fiscal year, uh, but the budget contains over $68.3 billion in total spending. So a big increase in overall expenses for the budget, and the, the debt levels will basically now hold the line, remaining roughly stable where they are right now, rather than paying down. Uh, those debt levels. Interestingly, even the debt-to-GDP metric, which uh, can fall even if debt levels don't, even that's going to remain roughly stable over the next year. Well, that's interesting. So with some of this money being uh, directed back into spending, where is it going? Does it seem to be distributed in a lot of different areas or is it concentrated anywhere? Well, some of it is uh, the temporary spending related to the inflation uh, affordability measures, but the bulk of it is being spread across higher operating spending in almost all of the main ministries of government. Uh, Health is a big one, of course. We've seen that telegraphed earlier from the government, but education is seeing a boost. Post-secondary is also seeing a boost. So it's very broad-based. In addition to that normal expenses in the budget, there's also a pretty large increase in the amount of infrastructure spending, which is not normally booked as an expense 
year those dollars flow out. Uh, those have increased to a little over a billion dollars relative to what the government was previously planning for. Yeah, it's interesting. You posted a flow chart, I think you would call this, a, a chart on, on your Twitter page sort of looking at, uh, at the budget, the money coming in, the money going out. One aspect that really jumped out to me, the amount of money that comes in in total taxes is almost exactly equivalent to the amount of money we spend on health care. That, that's mm-hmm. pretty staggering. Yeah, so just the one ministry. Now, of course, health is the largest area of uh, provincial government operations here and across the country. But what makes Alberta unique is, yeah, every single dollar of taxes is kind of roughly equivalent to just that one ministry, health. And that means everything else, education, post-secondary, children's services, justice, transport, everything, everything else combined uh, is paid through, for through non-tax revenues, uh, fees, uh, investment income, natural resources, of course, being a big one, and then federal transfers. Does it seem pretty clear to you that some of these big conversations or big questions about changing how we spend money, changing how we collect revenue, changing you know the way in which we allocate resource dollars, that, that all of that's really been, been kicked down the road yet again? Yeah, and I think that was a missed opportunity in the budget. And, and, and you know, it's not for me to evaluate the, the merits of the spending decisions that the government took, but uh, make no mistake, we are spending the now higher resource revenues, which means we are more exposed to oil price swings than we used to be. By 2025, this budget suggests that each $1 change in the price of oil is going to translate to $850 million to the government's bottom line. So we're we're at a nice edge here, heavily reliant on a very volatile energy source. And that's in big contrast to the last pre-election budget that the province has seen, and that's Jim Prentice's from 2015. That was a, a budget facing the opposite uh, set of circumstances with low oil prices, low resource revenues. And that was a budget that really did try and move the needle by saving half of total resource revenues. Now, of course, that budget didn't work out for the premier at the time, and they were uh, shown the door after the election. And so maybe there's a little bit of hesitation to really bite the bullet this time around. But to have such high resource revenues and then to turn around and spend almost all of it, um, does it d- does create some risk for the province. Oh, indeed. We'll leave it there. Uh, great insight uh, analysis as always. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate you it. You bet. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, Trevor Toom, Associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. So some good breakdown from him as to, you know, where, where all the resource revenue is going, where all the overall revenue is coming from, and how much this government is spending. So big spending, but enough revenue that there is still a surplus. But it's about a $2.4 billion surplus. It's about $18.4 billion in resource revenues. That's a huge number. If that number's that big, shouldn't the surplus be bigger? Is it right to spend all of that? So it's basically taking the government's $16 billion of reliance on resource revenues just to balance the budget. So it's interesting that now the finance minister talks about a balanced budget law. It's easy and convenient to talk about that when you've got such a massive cushion there. It would be really, really, really hard right now to be running a deficit, given all of that. So spending is up significantly, but again, so too is revenue, hence the uh, small surplus here. One interesting and kind of ironic fact in all of this 
Now, when governments table budgets, they, they sort of make forecasts, projections for years out. So this year, for example, overall spending is $68.3 billion. In the final budget tabled by the NDP, the spending projection for this year, as they saw it, was $66.5 billion. So this government's actually spending about $2 billion more than was forecast to be spent this year by the previous NDP government. But, I mean, even the uh, government's own update uh, forecast uh, lower spending. As Trevor Toom notes, the government's plan as recently as November of 2022 for spending in this fiscal year was $63.9 billion. We're now at 68.3. It's been a weird controversy that's emerged in recent weeks with regard to children's author Roald Dahl, the British author who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Fantastic Mr. Fox, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, the BFG, the Big Friendly Giants, a whole host of beloved children's books. That Puffin, which is uh, an imprint of Penguin Random House, had decided that uh, maybe these books needed to be rewritten. They needed to be updated, needed to be sanitized. So they announced that these books were going to be rewritten and language deemed to be offensive was going to be removed. Uh, in some instances, for example, like the word fat would be replaced with enormous, which, okay, it's kind of the same thing. I'm not sure why that's better. Uh, one of the examples in the Twits, Mrs. Twit was described as ugly and beastly, would just be described as beastly. So this seems very strange. What are we accomplishing here by making these changes? What kind of a precedent are we setting by deciding long after these authors are gone uh, that their works need to change? Now, there have been controversies over the years around certain books or the appearance of certain words in classic literature, like books with the N-word, is that a reason to keep that away from kids? Is that something they should read and better understand? How do you go about doing so? But I don't really remember a lot of controversy around Roald Dahl and his books. And he decided that he was comfortable with how they were written and, and left them as they were. So after a huge outcry over these plans, uh, Penguin Random House has backed down somewhat. They've now decided they're going to release both. They're going to re-release the books as originally written, and they're still planning on releasing these revised, rewritten, sanitized, censored uh, versions of these books. So it has prompted quite a conversation. Our next guest had a really interesting piece for The Nation. TheNation.com with the headline, Let Kids Read Roald Dahl's Books the Way He Wrote Them. Katha Pollitt is an award-winning columnist for The Nation magazine and author as well. Her latest is called Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. And she joins us on the line here this afternoon. Katha, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So this uh, story has taken some interesting turns here. As mentioned, Penguin Random House backing down a little bit, almost wanting to have their cake and eat it too, maybe as some critics uh, would see it. What what was your reaction? Well, it's interesting that the backlash against these changes, which were hundreds throughout 
um, his corpus of children's books, mm-hmm. uh, was so the backlash was so fierce that they had to they had to back down, uh, and it was from so many really famous and wonderful writers like Salman Rushdie, for example, um, and. Uh, I think that they realized that they had gone too far, and so then you know this is America. You get a choice. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> we'll see. We'll see which version wins. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know why this came about in the first place, and I, I get that there's at times maybe an uncomfortable relationship between how we see things today and and maybe how things once were. Uh, you know, fifty, a hundred years ago, and some pieces of literature might seem a little uncomfortable or awkward in that light, but. This seems like a very odd way to to go about reconciling all of that. Well, I think it is. And, you know, I don't really understand why they did this, Um, whether it was to make more money because they felt the books weren't selling every possible copy that they could sell, or they were afraid that somebody would get hold of the old versions, which are still, you know, in print, Mm -hmm. um, and attack them on Twitter or what. I don't know. Or, you know, sometimes, too, you start out with a a little project. Oh, let's just change a word here or there. But before you know it, there's no stopping point, right? So maybe they just started out to say, oh, all these references to fat kids, that's really mean. Let's change that. And then it expanded from there, as many things do. But it was really a disastrous idea. And I I think they're seeing that. Oh, no doubt. I mean, it is quite a rabbit hole, isn't it? That once you open that door and you start making a couple of changes here, it it really does seem to snowball and it gets into the realm now where they were making, as you pointed out, I mean, hundreds of changes. It it can really get away from you. Yes. uh, And I think I think there is something else going on, too, which is even as the real world is continues to be harsh and cruel in many ways. Um, And you can go on pop culture and find, you know, the most horrific words being used just like they're ordinary English. Um, For example, bitch, uh, ho, Mm -hmm. I mean, the tremendous misogyny. There's this idea within children's literature that everything should be really nice. Everything should be sweetness and light. and so there are these sensitivity readers who will read a book. This is before, usually before publication. They will read a book to see that it's not, not sexist, it's not racist, it's not doesn't hurt feelings. Um, and this is, I think, an outgrowth of that. It's a little shocking because it's a book. These books are so well known, and they exist, you know, in editions of millions. Um, and all the grown-ups have read them. <laughs> so right. it's not some obscure little thing. Well, and obviously Roald Dahl wanted to write his books a certain way. He was very deliberate in, in how he told stories and the words he chose. And, and yes, words like fat and, and ugly are unpleasant and, and you know, maybe not, not in keeping with, with today's standards. But that's how he wanted his books to be. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. He did make a few changes. Um, he, he, he mostly refused to, but sometimes his editors or other people persuaded him. And one example of that is the Oompa Loompas mm-hmm. in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, who started out life as black pygmies in a darkest Africa where, quote, no white man had ever been. Um, and uh, Willy Wonka shanghais them to his factory <laughs> where, 
where they contentedly work for cocoa beans. Wow. Um, so that was just too much, and that got changed to uh, they they were white, they were um, they uh, um, you know they were they didn't come from Africa, they right. came from Oompa Loompa land. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know what the in this latest version, they're not allowed to be men. There is a gender. There's a lot of gender changing in these oh, books, really? and one of them is the Oompa Loompas are now of both sexes. So that seems kind of unnecessary to me. I would say so. But what's interesting is you say, and that was that was his change. That was something yeah. that he so, well, decided, the, right? That's the important thing. Yeah. He decided to do that. I mean, these are his books, and I think after somebody's dead. And they have had a chance to think it through. I mean, he only died in 1990. It wasn't like he lived 100 years ago when these right. things would not have ever occurred to anybody. Um, and I think once a person is dead, you should just leave it the way it is. And if people don't want to read the book anymore, well, that's the fate of most books. <laughs> you know? So um, I, I just think this was a very, very misguided uh, enterprise. Well, and I think you touched on something. I mean, you know, maybe the publisher sees this at some level as as noble, but it is ultimately about selling books. And sure, maybe if some books fall out of favor, uh, they're they're not being purchased anymore. And to the publisher, that's that's not good for the bottom line. Like, was this more about nobility or political correctness, or was this at some level maybe more so about the bottom line? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Netflix owns the Roald Dahl Empire. And so that means they own the rights not just to the ultimately own the rights to the not just the books but also to the movies that are made from them. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I saw the first version, the um, the Gene Wilder version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, a couple of years ago with my granddaughter. I, I was pretty shocked, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, those obnoxious kids are really obnoxious. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and I did feel sort of like, what's this all about? Um, so I think, you know, we won't be seeing that movie too often. No, perhaps not. I do wonder, coming out of all of this, you know, the controversy this sparked, the conversations this sparked, and, and ultimately to see uh, Penguin Random House and, and Poffin, their, their reversal here, do, do you think that it's less likely that anyone will try to do this in the future with any other classic authors or classic books? Well, I hope so. They've been so made fun of. Um, and parodied, and you know, there's nobody really in the public sphere. You don't find anyone speaking up in favor of this. No, no. You know, and no one is writing an article saying, "Well, thank God they <laughs> right. they censored Roald Dahl." Um, it's all the other way, and it's some very important people too, um, including the Prime Minister of you know Rishi, Rishi Sunak, who's the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Right. Um, so, I I hope that this does wake people up to um, the unnecessary fiddling with books that is going on. But doesn't it seem like an odd target, too? And that's one thing that occurred to me through all of this. I, I can think back even to when I was in, in school and, and books that were sort of seen as somewhat controversial. And even to this day, there are certain books or certain authors that you know, people wonder, should these be in schools or should kids be reading them? It seems like there's a lot of books that would be ahead in the lineup of authors to revisit or edit. Why why do you think Roald Dahl got singled out here? Well, I think Roald Dahl, first of all, he's a very big deal. Yeah. Um, His books are read and beloved, 
and they've been made into movies, and he's still he's still a kind of a living figure in the culture, mm-hmm. although dead. Um, and his books, they're so energetic in the way they're written. They're so, you know, they're not just another children's book. Um, they're very vibrant and they they vibrate with this emotional energy some of and and verbal energy and some of it is quite um negative uh you don't get the feeling that <laughs> Roald Dahl was you know a friend to all mankind right. um so maybe it was maybe it was that but there probably is some corporate financial story yeah. behind all this that I don't know about I suspect so. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. But in the meantime, uh, we mentioned your piece. It's up at thenation.com. The headline, Let Kids Read Roald Dahl's Books the Way He Wrote Them. Katha, really appreciate the conversation here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, there you go. That's Katha Paulett, an award-winning columnist for The Nation magazine, thenation.com. And you can read her latest, Let Kids Read Roald Dahl's Books the Way He Wrote Them. She's an author herself. Her latest book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. So I think she makes some some really interesting and important points here. There, there was really no need to do this. And so the uh, the publisher here, Penguin Random House, which controls the imprint, uh, imprint Puffin, you know, they've, they've damaged their own reputation and credibility. So this was a completely unforced error here on their part. They still plan on releasing both versions of these books as they were originally written and these rewritten versions. Now, I got a text here that says, Rob, why are we not just creating news stories as opposed to changing someone else's writings or stories? Exactly. Exactly. He wrote these books, uh, wrote them a certain way. And through the rest of his life, that's how he chose to keep them. They're his works. That's how he wrote them. If he wanted to change them, he could have. And, and as, you know, as was mentioned, he did back uh, in, when they were originally written. If you're uncomfortable with his books, read somebody else's books. Write a new book. All these people spending all of this time going back and nitpicking what Roald Dahl wrote – they could be spending their time coming up with, with new or more inclusive stories if they think that's what's, what's wanted. You know, and, and new books tend to do well. It's not always just the classics that dominate. But, uh, I did want to get back, as mentioned, to talk about uh, these guidelines that were presented to Canadians. Health Canada did fund this, uh, the Canadian Center for Substance Use and Addiction updating their 2011 guidelines and some big changes. The recommendation of no more than one to two drinks a day is now a recommendation of no more than one to two drinks per week. I mean, it's essentially advocating abstinence, which, again, I mean, that that may be something that Canadians choose. But is this an evidence-based set of recommendations? So there's been some pushback against this, including a new analysis from the International Scientific Forum on Alcohol Research. You can read more at alcoholresearchforum.org. Joining us on the line is one of the authors uh, of this report, uh, Dr. Karina Stockley. He's a clinical pharmacologist, adjunct senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide uh, in Australia. And one of the authors, as mentioned, uh, of this analysis, Dr. Stockley, good to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Okay, so as you see it then, what, what are some of the problems with these recommendations and the analysis from the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction? Well, it's an interesting one. Um, the 
report says that the evidence changed, that the rationale for actually writing the report with the evidence has changed. The evidence itself actually hasn't changed, um, but rather the focus, I think, for drinking guidelines has, has changed, not just in Canada, but worldwide. So, yeah, so the scientific base really hasn't changed, the focus has changed. And we could put that change down to being threefold, but there's been a change of focus away from individual consumer factors and influences on blood alcohol concentrations such as age, body mass index, gender, associated effects, good and bad health. Um, there's also been a change in focus away from pattern consumption compared, um, compared to the amount and there's also been a change in focus towards risk of death over a lifetime, adding the risk of death from short-term harms together with longer-term harms. And the focus of longer-term harms has also changed away from cardiovascular diseases to cancer. But overall, when you look at all the scientific evidence, it hasn't changed. And, and that's the most frustrating part. It's the focus and how they're putting it together. And what they're losing with that because there's no one size fits all with any guidelines um, and and people don't drink yeah. just because of, of alcohol they drink for innumerable reasons so it becomes very complex when you look at that um, and I think their public summary in, is entitled drinking less is better and we know that even a small amount of alcohol can be damaging um, and states that the science is involving so that the recommendations then will need to change um, that even a small amount is damaging to anyone. But they just seem to disregard so much of the general data out there that they try and recreate the wheel with all their calculations. Well, we have amazing international studies that show that the data hasn't changed, that very clearly that drinking in moderation actually has a longer-term overall benefit, and that's even taking into account cancer. If you take all your diseases separately, yes, there will be differences mm -hmm. because alcohol affects different body organs differently. But when you put it all together as overall risk-benefit, um, there is still a benefit which they downplay on cardiovascular disease. And cardiovascular disease internationally still remains the biggest, I suppose, killer for want of better word, I don't like that word, um, but cause of death internationally. And, and really, you know, when you're looking at 142,960 uh, individuals, for example, in a population-based study, um, that really does show that there is an idea in the association that there is a, a, a point where you do still have a J-shaped curve and then the deer is where, where you've got the J-shaped bit and then it goes up when you cross that, that safety line. Um, safety is probably not a good, good term because, um, but it's low risk and there has been a big change in the last 30 years from safe drinking guidelines to low risk because depending on the person, there will always be a risk for every person um, because, you know, no two persons' factors are the same. Right. Um, it, it's just one of those things. And I, I, I think the Canadians themselves who are doing it, um, they are basing it on a, a very different thing. The 2011 guidelines 
quite frankly, are still very relevant if you look at them. Um, and they were the first internationally to, to look at different types of modelling. But I think they have taken that modelling to an extreme now. They have based it on UK modelling, which then the Australian guidelines were based on. And this modelling has been flawed and it's been picked up as flawed. And you, you know your guidelines are only good, as good as the evidence and your, your, your calculations. So if there's going to be a problem with the calculations and evidence and they were using, um, for want of a better word, cherry-picked evidence, then, of course, you're going to get a particular um, outcome. And, and this is, uh, they predicted that. Um, if you look at some of the authors of the guidelines, they actually wrote about this several years earlier, their prediction. And, of course, you can, you know, when you've already got a prediction, it's not hard to tailor what you use as evidence make that prediction come true. Well, and that's a big concern here that, that you know, the data is being cherry picked to to reach a certain conclusion. Uh, as, as noted in this analysis, there's a concern here that there's a reliance on studies of low scientific validity. There's yes. an exclusion of studies that are of, of high quality. That That's that's a concern here. Uh, absolutely. And, and they said that they were using their initial um, um, evidence base and adding to it. There's been a lot of data out there. They keep going back to the um, the what they call the sick quitter hypothesis, which theoretically they use to debunk that alcohol has any beneficial effect. Yet some of the Canadian authors themselves say that this isn't the case. Um, we, we, we've noticed that in, in other papers that they've written earlier that they're saying that, you know, taking all of this into account, yes, there still is a beneficial effect of moderate alcohol consumption. And the term does come down to moderate um, alcohol consumption. And internationally, when you look at the scientific papers, not the epidemiological studies where you're number crunching, but these actual scientific papers where you're looking at large populations of people, it is still approximately two standard drinks um, or about 200 mils because no, there are so many different definitions of standard drink internationally. It can be quite confusing. Um, but about 200, um, um, 200 mils, um, um, 20 grams of alcohol is approximately that moderating effect. But that will also change for individuals because, you know, no size, weight, gender, or has an effect to play, which has been totally disregarded in these guidelines. In fact, not just in the Canadian guidelines, but in the Australian and the recent UK, they have um, disregarded this gender difference. I mean, it also seems like moderate consumption is being lumped in here with with more heavy consumption. That, that's oh, obviously right. And, and the biggest part of the problem yes. that we need to address is is that side of it. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we talk about this J-shaped curve, light to moderate consumption. You've got a low um, low risk of diseases, um, and then you've got a you know, you've got an increasing risk when it becomes above moderate. Now, that will be slightly different for different disease states. You know, we recognise that. Um, and, and cancer's an interesting one. There are some cancers, and, and, and this is not new data. This data has been around for a very long time. So the fact that they're saying this is new data is not true. Um, 
it's just been lumped together differently. Um, that there are certain cancers, yes, we know um, the what we would call the aerodigestive cancers where alcohol comes in contact with the mucosal lining. Yes, we know there's a direct relationship. We also know that there is, um, and also with um, potential colon cancer for men, um, but we know that there's a threshold for other cancers too. Now, breast cancer is an interesting one. It's not just about alcohol. There are so many different risk factors that come into play for breast cancer. And I can say this because I've had breast cancer. Um, so it, it is an interesting one. And no two breast cancers, believe me, are the same. Um, so it really becomes very um, difficult. And then when you try and talk about social issues that of course, as well as the health issues, that becomes into a whole new realm of its own because you can't really put those, um, those social effects in with the acute because the social effects um, are something quite separate and you have to deal with them quite separately. Um, rather than trying to lump them in, that that's a problem that won't go away until those, the basis of those those issues are actually addressed, and that is something that's almost impossible because it's related to so many different things, including for some people they have an addictive personality, and that's very hard because it is a it is like a, a disease then that, that they can't um, that they need to be trained to know how to deal with. But I'm not an addiction specialist. I'm a clinical pharmacologist. Right. So I'm talking on the pharmacology and, and the health effects here. Well, some very important points. Uh, much more is mentioned, alcoholresearchforum.org. Dr. Stockley, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate the insight on all of this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. All the best. Appreciate it. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Crana Stockley. Uh, clinical pharmacologist and adjunct senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide in Australia. One of the authors of this analysis for the International Scientific Forum on Alcohol Research, responding to Canada's new guidance on alcohol and health, finding that these recommendations are not based in evidence, are not justifiable. And if Canadians are looking for some clarity, they suggest simply going back to the 2011 guidelines which are still valid, which are still sound, which are still based in evidence and did not warrant this overhaul. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.